Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 62nd episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is career lessons it takes years to learn. I'm joined by Gorik Ng. He is the author of The Unspoken Rules, Secrets to Starting Your Career Off Right. The publisher is Harvard Business Review Press. Gorick is a career advisor at Harvard College, specializing in coaching first-generation low-income students. He's also managed new employees at Boston Consulting Group, worked in investment banking at Credit Suisse, been a researcher with the Managing the Future of Work Project at Harvard Business School. Uh, His work has been featured in The Today Show on CNBC and in The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and Fast Company. This year, Harvard Business School gave Gorick's book to every MBA student give them an edge in their internships and full-time jobs. Welcome to the show, Gorik. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. Thrilled to be here. Delighted. So let's uh, get off with a brief overview of the book. Can you tell me a bit about it? Sounds great. So I wrote this book after realizing that the secrets to getting ahead and to be building a successful career aren't found in the public library or in the classroom. It's passed down from parent to child and from mentor to mentee. And so what I did was go out there and interview over 500 professionals across geographies, industries, and job types to understand what they wish someone could have told them earlier about how to survive and thrive in the workplace. I've taken these 500 plus interviews, distilled it down to a practical how-to guide, and called it the unspoken rules, secrets to start your career off right. It's a guide on how to show up on your first day, how to manage expectations, how to manage up, how to lead meetings, how to navigate workplace politics, how to set yourself up for a promotion, even if there isn't a set career path for you. All of those things that can lead to careers stumbling and stalling, but that can also make the difference between a high performer and a mediocre performer. All it takes is knowledge of some of these unspoken rules. Well, there's a lot there I love, first of all, that you went out and you talked to a lot of people in a wide variety of places. I think that's that's wonderful to go out and do that field research and broaden the perspective. Uh, I can also relate in that, uh, you know, it probably wasn't until I was 35 that I came to realize that my parents, of course, knew something and were worth investigating <laughs> what they knew is that maybe it could help me avoid a few mistakes in life. Uh, too often, we're kind of like the Wizard of Oz, and we we imagine it's just the adults who are the bumbling would-be wizards and eventually come to realize we're also bumbling at times. Uh, so there's a lot of great things. I, I also really love this book because a lot of business books, quite honestly, might start out strong. They were like a really good article in a magazine, but they fade a bit or they start repeating themselves. You keep <laughs> taking us through the progression of the career. In many ways, I thought the closing three or four chapters were among the very best in the book. So uh, congratulations on a wonderful book. So let's <laughs> let's start that. out really early. You have something called the three C's model. I think this is quite instrumental to the book. So walk us through that if you don't mind. Sounds great. So the three C's is really the the North Star to the book. And it stands for competence, 
commitment and compatibility. And the idea is this, the minute you show up, whether it's on a resume in a cover letter, in an interview, in a coffee chat, and especially in a new role, the people around you are sizing you up and they're asking themselves three questions. Question one is, can you do this job well? Which is competence. Question two is, are you excited to be here? Which is commitment. And question three is, do we get along? Which is compatibility. So competence, commitment, compatibility, the three C's. Your job, frankly, all of our jobs, it's to convince the people around us to answer yes to all three questions all the time. You can imagine these as three circles in a Venn diagram where our challenge is to find our way to the center of each of those three circles at that intersection point, because it's important to show competence in order for people to trust you with more important responsibilities. It's important to show commitment for people to want to invest in your career. And it's important to demonstrate compatibility for people to want to work with and be around you. So that's the three C's. That's the North Star to building a successful career. And ultimately, that looks and sounds differently depending on whether you're in a meeting, a phone call, a one-on-one with your manager, dealing with conflict in the workplace. And that's where the rest of the book comes in. Yeah, no, I think it's a really good way to start it out. And I had a chuckle when I got the compatibility. I remember interviewing for an academic job and uh, the committee said to me, well, we know you're going to be really good. We know you're going to publish. What we really want to know is, can we stand to go to lunch with you for the next 30 years? <laughs> and uh, it was honest and I, I liked them for that. Um, one of the things that you raise and tease kind of on the flap for the book, and I think it's important to all of us, is what are the common mistakes people make at work? Uh, you have quite a few of them that you hit on early on. You don't make us wait and wait through the book to get there. I have two or three that I particularly liked. One of them is think like an owner, but uh, maybe you have other ones that you particularly uh, cotton to. Do you want to take us through maybe two or three of those? Sure thing. Well, the first one that comes to mind is the idea of stepping up without overstepping. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> and really that speaks to the the notion of compatibility and commitment really, which is that it's important to be aware of opportunities to step outside of your comfort zone, to step outside and move beyond what you've been assigned to addressing problems that matter to those who matter in terms of what's stressing my manager out, what's my team trying to achieve, and what's this organization trying to, where's this organization trying to go? And ultimately trying to position yourself for more important responsibilities and, and volunteering for those responsibilities rather than wait for others to assign that work to you. However, it's not just about stepping up, as I said, it's also about not overstepping. So it's understanding what are the invisible barriers, comfort zones, and swim lanes that permeate the workplace and that aren't going to be well-defined. So understanding, looking left, looking right, and taking a look at who's responsible for what and when, where is there an opportunity for you to do something that hasn't been done, fix a problem that hasn't been fixed, share something that hasn't been shared, bridge something that hasn't been bridged, and ultimately do something that hasn't been done without overstepping and potentially coming across as threatening, or in the language of the three C's, overshooting your zone of commitment. Sure. No, that that's wonderfully well stated. Uh, the last of those rules was push gently. That was in that opening <laughs> section of the bush, which really gets to that nuance you're trying for. You are pushing, 
but you're pushing gently so that you don't come across as, as threatening and alienate people. And then you're going to inadvertently create barriers for yourself. Let's take that in terms of a particular um, case studies that were not one you have in the book, but I just happened to talk to someone yesterday. We were discussing office politics and she said to me, this is what I found myself in. I was in a new job. Suddenly they told me I had to develop in three months a 200-page directory of the company and try to showcase people regarding the specialties without upsetting and alienating other people. Nobody was going to be available for an interview. I had to glean stuff from the website alone. She finally put it together. She put it out to a few people that she thought were allies. Everybody was offended because everyone wanted to think they were special in some way that she hadn't quite captured. What in the world should Rachel have done in this assignment uh, to make it work more successfully from your point of view? <laughs> That's a great anecdote. An unfortunate anecdote, uh, just thinking from this person's point of view, where one of the things that I think about a lot is the idea of keeping people informed and keeping people consulted. And ultimately, making sure that when a decision comes forward and gets presented in a meeting, that it's not the first time people are seeing something, but it's something that they've already subconsciously or explicitly approved of. So in the case of this individual, something I start thinking about is, was there perhaps an opportunity to involve people in the decision-making process as it was being made? So is there perhaps a list of people that she could have gone to and said, hey, I'm trying to put this document together would love your perspective and to incorporate your feedback early on so that this reflects how you would like this deliverable to ultimately look like. And then as she's collecting feedback and putting this draft together, going back to these individuals and saying, here's what I'm learning. Here's where I think I'd like to go next. Would love your feedback on anything you'd like to add, remove, or change. Is there anything that I should start doing, stop doing, or keep doing? And doing this in an iterative process such that when the final deliverable lands on people's doorsteps, they're saying, oh yeah, I had a, I had a say in this, or I approved of this two weeks ago, no need for me to, 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 to question anything that's on the page here. And so this perhaps also leads into one of these other unspoken rules, which is the unspoken rule of no surprises, where I yeah. say surprises might be helpful and even fun on a birthday, but surprises can be a reputation killer in the workplace. The secret here is be predictable. Let people know what you're about to do before you go ahead and do it. That way, no one's surprised. You know, I, I like that a lot. Make sure they have a say so they feel like they're invested. I, I My suggestion to her might have been, you know, in hindsight, of course, because she's already gone through this experience, to uh, perhaps even just meet with the person, maybe read aloud some phrases, some thoughts she had without a paper trail without a document they're seeing cold. And yes, start that dialogue going as, as you're suggesting. Uh, so that's great. Um, another part in the book, you're talking about identifying the influencers, the informal power brokers. And you've got different categories here, the gatekeepers, the veterans, the experts, the socialites, the advisors. Um, of those, maybe tell me about the socialites and why they're in there and how you particularly work with them. But maybe you want to touch on other ones as well. Sure thing. So the, the socialites I define as the people who seem to know everyone and are also respected by everyone. So these are the people in the workplace where you might meet someone and they'll say, oh, you should absolutely speak with Dan. And then you talk to another person, and they'll say, have you talked to Dan yet? And you talk to a third person and they say, oh, I should totally introduce you to Dan. 
when you start hearing the word Dan tossed around like that, especially in a positive light, it's probably a sign that Dan's the type of person who knows how to navigate systems and people and reporting lines and, 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 and ambiguity such that this person likely has the ear of the higher ups or is someone that people will want their opinions on or is someone who is so well networked within the organization that they might be able to tell you, hey, for you to make sure that this idea gets approved, you should make sure you navigate these people in this sequence. So these socialites aren't necessarily subject matter experts. They're not necessarily, they, they may not necessarily even be the most competent in their job, but what they do have is social capital and reputational capital. So they know people and people know them. And ideally people also know them in a positive way. So affiliating yourself with them, or at least getting to know them can not only open doors, but can also help you avoid blind spots because they know what's been tried. They know how to navigate the system in a way that you as a newbie may not be aware of. And when I think about some of these other influencers, I, I talk a great deal about how the most important people aren't necessarily the people who have the fanciest job titles. They're not necessarily the people at the top. Certainly the people at the top have formal authority just based on where they are in the pecking order and the chain of command. But what they don't necessarily have is informal authority or influence. And it's really a matter of identifying these people that can make the difference between getting a project approved, getting promoted, being visible at work, and potentially being invisible. Okay. No, I, I really love the idea. Many years ago, I was the director of executive communications for a major utility on the East Coast, uh, PSE&G. I was in charge of the annual report, but I actually suggested they have an employee annual report as well yeah, in the, you know, the half-year cycle. And my goal was to try to find the informal power leaders and give them a voice because, of course, we had labor issues, union issues. And I thought it'd be nice to try to change that dynamic and give these people a voice. And, uh, you know, it, it got shot down by senior management. They didn't want to spend the money, didn't want to potentially roil the waters. But it was really aimed at uh, showcasing those informal power brokers. We certainly had them, but I don't think senior management in many cases knew who they were um, or certainly weren't honoring and respecting them. So it, really a fascinating idea. I think it's, it's super important to get to those people who are wired in. Let's shift to something else here. Meetings. Uh, we spent a lot of time in meetings. Uh, colleague, in fact, at that utility company once said, what would it be like that you didn't have to come in on Friday if you had no meetings? Amazing how the schedule would clear. <laughs> um, but meetings are a fact of life. How do you best navigate a, a meeting itself? What's kind of going on here? I'm particularly interested in your suggestion you need to figure out what's the hidden goal of the meeting. Can you can you take me there? Sure thing. Yeah, I, I as I started hearing more and more both positive stories and maybe some horror stories around meetings, I started realizing that there's really an unspoken expectation around how you'll prepare for meetings, how you'll engage in the meeting, and then how you'll follow up after the meeting. So in the book, I have seven steps or seven questions that I'd encourage people to think about before, during, and after meetings. And all of this rolls up to the question that you raised, which is of the different types of meetings, where there are meetings that are meant for sharing information, where everyone perhaps goes around the table, offers their perspective or something they learned. There are meetings 
meant to make a decision, in which case anything that you contribute that pushes the the team towards the broader hidden objective of this meeting is a smart or an intelligent or a relevant comment. And then there are also meetings that are per, for the purposes of keeping people up to date. Some companies might call these standups where you're going around the room and everyone's talking about what they've done, what they still have to do, and where they might need help. And so when I start thinking about the meetings that I've personally been in, it was interesting to see how there was always this hidden objective, but there was never really an explicit warning that, hey, we're trying to come to this conclusion, or we're trying to have the status update be delivered, or we're trying to share this information and this is perhaps, at least in my humble opinion, perhaps why we have so many meetings that could have been emails, because people may not have had the foresight to think about, okay, why am I actually even bringing people together right now? And could this be accomplished through some other means? However, given the world that we live in, it's an imperfect one. We do, in fact, have a lot of meetings that could have been emails. But just because the meeting has this ill-defined agenda doesn't mean that you can just be invisible. I talk a lot in my book about how important it is to not just be seen, but to also be heard. And this is really an opportunity for you to flex your competence and your commitment by offering information that hasn't been shared and to make sure that you're speaking up, especially if those at your level are also speaking up so that people aren't looking at you and saying, hmm, are you not speaking up because you don't have anything to say, because you're not engaged, or because you don't know what you're talking about? <laughs> of course, you don't want those assumptions to come flying, which is where it's important to know not only the objective of the meeting, but also your unspoken role in this meeting. Sure. And at the same time, you also don't want to be too threatening. So you want to speak up, but uh, go back to your push gently comment <laughs> from earlier. Um, what about a meeting that kind of uh, dovetails or swirls around in terms of its hidden goal? Maybe it starts out sharing information and someone hears something and suddenly it's moving toward making a decision. Did any of the 500 people you talked to mention something like that? <laughs> I would say perhaps the majority of them okay. where they, they think, oh, yikes, what am I supposed to do here if I'm in the presence of longer rambling, higher ranking, louder talking coworkers who hog up all the airtime, bring us down tangents? What am I supposed to be doing here? <laughs> <laughs> and sure. and I, I bring in a few, uh, a few points here, one being to on the topic of making sure that you're not just seen, but also heard, it's important to figure out what's a way to get your voice heard if you are in the presence of such coworkers, where is there an opportunity nowadays, if you're doing video chat, to type in your response in the chat window? Or can you unmute yourself so that the microphone at the top right-hand corner of your of your chat window disappears? And that's almost a a virtual flare that you're sending out to the team saying, hey, I'm, I'm trying to say something or I have something to say. Or is there an opportunity to load up the first syllable of whatever you want to say so that you can pounce right in as someone else is finishing their point before someone else interjects? So a lot of little tactics that, that, that I talk about and, 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 and that could be helpful. But so much of this is around making sure that you're pushing the conversation forward. So here, I'm talking about the importance of speaking up, yes, but there's also 
a, a subconscious litmus test of what it means to be making an intelligent comment that pushes the discussion forward. And here, I think about the broader goal of the meeting and asking myself, am I sharing something that helps us make a better decision? Am I relating my comment back to someone else's comment from previously? Am I reminding the group of a certain piece of information that we may have overlooked? Am I raising an assumption or poking holes in an assumption or digging deeply into a, a certain topic or detail that others may not have thought about? So I think about really questions around observing the meeting as it's unfolding around you and asking yourself, what's missing? What's problematic? What's, what's unexpected? What's wrong? And ultimately, what can I say that is going to be of value to the group? Yeah, no, I thought that was a, a great checklist because too many meetings are, of course, you know, an act of befuddlement seemingly for everybody involved. And to bring that kind of clarity or look at the patterns and try to figure out how you can add the value, I, I thought that was immensely good uh, insight. I want to switch now to the uh, the boss-employee relationship. It's my contention that what happens over time is it's – it's like a marriage, only you're not going to have those sometimes more honest conversations. So all this emotional throwaway builds up that in some ways overshadows the work itself. And you may talk about those issues in the relationship, but you probably won't. And yet you got to you got to deal with it and, and find your way through day after day. So let's just start on in a little bit of a softer manner. You, you uh, mentioned early in the book that there are things that managers expect but don't explain. Do you want to maybe just give us one juicy example of that? <laughs> yeah, well, what they expect and don't ex but don't explain, I would say, certainly depends on the context that you're in. But one that I find rather universal is to make sure that you're asking yourself why, what, how, by when. And the idea is when you're delegated an assignment by your manager, it's important to ask, why is this task being assigned? What are we trying to accomplish? How am I supposed to do this work? And by when should I do this work? Otherwise, you'll do the wrong work, do it the wrong way, or not do it on time. And as a result, fall below your zone of competence and come across as potentially clueless, even though it could have been an easy conversation. Now, I bring this up because when I think back to my own experiences starting out, there were so many times when my manager would give me an assignment and I would just smile and nod and assume that my manager had thought of every last detail for me. And whatever they said was equivalent to gospel. And if there were any, any details that I had missed, any inconsistencies, that it was my fault and not necessarily my manager's fault. What I realized along the way is that when managers are delegated assignments, that's just one of many tasks they have brewing in their heads. They may not be thinking through all the nitty gritty details of what do you need to do? How high should this be on your priority list? Should you prioritize this task first or finish your prior task? Should you be talking to all these people or doing this on your own? Should you be following a template or starting from scratch? Should you come back to me with a draft or come back to me with the, the, the full, the full thing? Should you, set up some time to meet with me by the end of today before you go too far ahead? Or am I expecting you to come back to me 
by the end of the week. And so, so many of these hidden expectations I think of as partially on you to uncover, but also part of your manager's responsibility to be more thorough in how they're thinking about how a certain assignment fits in with the broader objective. And I think this is partly just because managers are busy, but also managers having their own constraints around maybe someone higher up not having clarified the details and them passing the ambiguity along, expecting you subconsciously to be navigating and managing this ambiguity for them without necessarily telling you that, hey, this is actually a part of your job, not just to follow instructions, but to think on my behalf. Okay. I, I absolutely love that example. And I got to tell you why. I have a friend named Bob who uh, was getting his PhD at MIT, and he was given a formula to use by his professor. And he lost two years of his life almost because eventually he came back to the professor and said, I've tried everything to make this work. There must be a flaw in the formula. And the professor said, oh, yeah, you know, you should have tried it out. I just gave it to you. It wasn't, you know, wasn't foolproof. And Bob had assumed it would be, I mean, almost two years of his life uh, lost to trying to make this thing work that, you know, hadn't even been vetted. Wow. When, yeah. when you say two years, I, I'm thinking to myself, another quote that I heard from a manager, which is, don't go off and do the five-hour task or the five-day task until you know that you're on the right track with the five-minute task. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like uh, a situation that might be apt to, to look at through this lens. Yes, very much so. So let's, let's, go, let's go to another place, resolving conflicts. So I said, this book got better and better to me <laughs> as, as it kept moving through. Uh, so you have a diagram where you're talking about how you're going to try to handle this. And you're trying to diagnose whether it's a people problem, a position problem, a place problem. That's really with your career ultimately. But of course, there are day-to-day -day conflicts. Do you want to walk us through that model? Do you want to go to a particular conflict that you think is pretty seminal and, and maybe instructive for the listeners? Um, take, take the question where you want to. It <laughs> sounds good. Well, I, I think about the, the idea of job hopping nowadays, which, which is, is certainly top of mind yep. around folks maybe not feeling like a certain job is what they signed up for or didn't quite meet expectations. And the tendency or, or at least the temptation to say, you know what? I'm just going to leave. But what I started realizing as I talked to a number of what are called boomerang employees, which is a fancy way of saying employees who leave a firm only to realize that the grass was greenest where they were previously, that they come back. Yep. What I started realizing is that leaving a company isn't always the best first choice. It's maybe the, the, the second or third choice behind seeing if you can live with the situation, seeing if you can fix the situation, and then finally seeing if you'd like to leave the situation. And so when I start thinking about these boomerang employees and the notion of job hopping, I start realizing that often it's tempting to leave your situation without first thoroughly diagnosing what the root cause of your problem is and whether the frustration that you're feeling the stress that you're feeling, the, the, the energy that gets drained from you when you have to wake up in the morning and head to work, is that a symptom or is that the root cause? And when I started unpacking the reasons behind why people leave, I started coming upon the three categories that you detailed, which is, 
is this a people problem where you've got an issue with your coworkers, with your managers, with your clients, with your customers? Is it, some, is it something about that? Or is it about the place around the culture of the place, how it does its work, where it's headed? Or is it a matter of the position where is the issue you're encountering endemic to the type of role or profession that you signed up for? Is it a matter of how you're being compensated with your compensation and your benefits? When we start peeling back all those different layers and we start asking ourselves, why? I'm feeling tired. Why? Oh, it might be because I'm feeling overworked. Why am I being overworked? Because my managers give me a lot of work. Well, why is my manager giving me a lot of work? Oh, it's because someone else had, led the, had left the team and now I'm having to shoulder the burden of multiple employees. Well, why is that happening? Well, it may be because the, the company had just gone through a restructuring and people aren't really buying into where the company is headed. Well, why is that happening? Oh, well, it's because we have a leadership team that is making a certain set of decisions that may or may not be in alignment with how you might want to see the direction of the organization go. Okay, great. That's a place problem. And it's leading to a people problem. And it's ultimately coming back to you in the form of feeling stressed and frustrated. Great. Then the question becomes, how big of a puddle are you standing in? <laughs> <laughs> is this a problem you can fix by switching teams where you take a mini step out of your puddle? Or do you actually have to leave the company to, to solve this problem? Or do you have to leave your profession altogether? So really applying these, these frameworks and, and lenses and putting on these lenses to look at your situation can hopefully help you come across what I call the path of least regret, where it may not be the path of fastest relief. It may take some time to really uncover the root cause of your issue. But long-term, looking back, ideally, you'll end up making the right decision rather than a decision that leads to you becoming this boomerang employee. Okay. No, I love that. That's, that's really strong, wonderful stuff. One last lightning round sort of question. Mm -hmm. uh, for you personally, I'm talking about the chapter with, on promotion and transferable skills. Is Gork Ng a translator, a facilitator, a combiner, something else? What, what handle would you give yourself? <laughs> that's a good question. I haven't had that one before. And I, you know, I, I have heard folks tell me that I, I'm a translator where one of the, one of the, the subtitles of my book that I had considered, but that ultimately didn't quite make it was what your manager expects of you, but will never tell you and, or, and, or what your manager wants to tell you, but is too awkward to tell you or doesn't want to tell you. Sure. And so one lens through which I've been looking at this book and project is to what extent am I translating the hidden expectations of the workplace and distilling it down to something that we can all understand? So I, I've, I have thought of myself as this translator. At the same time, I also think of myself as a bit of a combiner, where when I was writing this book, frankly, I, it wasn't even my plan to write a book. Um, I, I was... I was and still am passionate about helping people close the gap between where they are and where they want to go, helping people achieve their full potential. But I wasn't actually sold on writing a book. I was actually quite unsure as to what medium the solution would take. Would this be a coaching service, a boot camp, a program, a blog, a, a podcast? 
so many possible nouns for for putting this solution together that I found myself when writing this book combining elements of different domains where certainly I looked to business books as inspiration, but I also looked to curriculum design experts to figure out how do we best scaffold this content in a way that would be compelling and would be digestible. I also looked to how apps are developed and looked at how they're structured in terms of a user-centered design point of view to make this as easy flowing for people as possible. And I'd like to think that the book, at least in my mind, in my humble opinion, isn't really a book. It's more of a toolkit that combines hopefully some, I can't be my own judge, so can't say it's best practice, but at least preferable practices from a bit of market research that I did around how to best distill this content down to something that would be accessible. Well, it is user-friendly, reader-friendly, so I think you succeeded. Um, <laughs> you know, scaffolding and all. Um, so our time is about up, Gorik. I want to thank you so much for being my guest on Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. This has been episode number 62, Career Lessons It Takes Years to Learn. My guest has been Gorik Ng. He is the author of The Unspoken Rules, Secrets to Starting Your Career Off-Right. To learn more, you can go to his hyperlink, which is HTTPS, course the dots the forward slashes then goric.com another forward slash and a question mark if you enjoyed today's show please give it a rating or review on itunes to check out other episodes you can go to my company's website at the three w's sensorylogic.com you can also go to the new books network's website and search by typing in the show's name finally i'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram in this case, somehow, because they're talking about office life, I couldn't resist a quote from the character Michael Scott from The Office, the boss, who said facetiously, make friends first, make sales second, make love third, in no particular order. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. 